Our scripture this morning is from Psalms chapter 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evil evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. For they, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, for they are ever full of sap and green, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Citizens Church family and any visitors. You're welcome today. Um, so good to have all of you here with us. Pray with me. God, we're thankful today for you. We're practicing thanksgiving. God, thank you most and above all simply for your steadfast love for us. God, you love and love and love us. God, some of us are having a really hard time hearing that, that you love me. Me, what are the barriers to your love that I'm feeling right now, God? God, illuminate those to us. Make them known. Where am I just so struggling to feel loved? God, and remind us that your steadfast love is for this world. You love, you love, you love, and will love, and will keep loving this world. Let that undo the hate in us this morning. Let that undo our biases. Let that undo our judgment and our self-righteousness. God, first let us see in ourselves the way that we apply those to ourselves. And then as you undo them in us, because we cannot but accept your grace if we want to know you, and we know that, then help that release the chains that we have also put through our judgment of others. God, help us to become more like Jesus this morning. We thank you that you sent your son to die for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray all of this in his blessed name. Amen. 
Well, this morning we're continuing our series on Psalms called Answering God. We've had a couple weeks. If you've missed them, you can go back and listen on the podcast or simply catch up here starting today. The Psalms are songs, but they're also prayers. And so in this series, we're talking about answering God being a way of prayer in which prayer does not originate from us out of the void, but we are actually answering God out of his nature, out of his works in our life, out of his works in the lives of redemptive history of the Bible. And we are responding out of that in a conversation that prayer is a conversation that we're having and that it is not simply a moment in which we get down on our knees, but prayer is actually a lifestyle that prayer is a facet of communion. And today we're going to continue that conversation thinking about how the Sabbath is a facet for communion through the lens of a Thanksgiving psalm. Just as I prayed a Thanksgiving prayer this morning, very specifically to mirror the Thanksgiving psalm we're about to, about to teach on. So turn to your Bibles in Psalm 92. Each week we're going to go through a different theme of psalm from the psalms. We can't cover all of them, so we're just going to pick a different theme. And this week we're looking at Psalm 92, a Thanksgiving psalm entitled, How Great Are Your Works? And it says specifically, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So this was a prescribed liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer of Israel, as we call the psalms, in the canon. This was a a song specifically to sing on the seventh day, Sabbath rest day, which was part of the law of Israel to follow. So this was something that the Israelites at a certain age in history in which the psalm was available, certainly by the time of the biblical Israelites, the ones who had assembled a canon of the Old Testament Bible, would have lived by and lived out of. There's a lot of common themes in this. You'll see them pop out. And I want you to begin to connect these themes because you will see that they relate throughout the whole Bible and throughout the whole New Testament, that they will enrich your reading of the Gospels. They will enrich your reading of the Old Testament. When you see that the tree in Psalm 1 is also here in Psalm 92, and it was also in the center of the Garden of Eden. You see these images reverberate and and help inform how we read the Bible. Here, too, you'll also see a throne-type image. God is up on high. In Psalm 2, we saw God actually reigning from the throne. And in Psalm 139, we saw the throne of God as his omni-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing nature. And here, also, we see a very common theme in the Psalms, which is enemies. You just you can't open a psalm hardly without seeing some concept, contrast of the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. Because God, if he is to be a good God, must be a just God, which means the evil that we see of this world must have a consequence. It can't be ignored or God wouldn't be good at all. He would be negligent. And so as we jump into this Sabbath psalm, just with our mind tuned poetically to these themes, I want us to explore specifically how these themes relate to rest. So we're going to ask this question of the text today. How does this psalmist rest? How does this psalmist rest? What is he doing to become rest? And refreshed. Now, why do I say that? Well, it, some of you have some understanding of the Sabbath. I grew up with like a super high view of Sabbath 
very uh, legal following of the Sabbath, a code of ethics and conduct that you did on the Sabbath, rules, you didn't gas up your car, you didn't go out to eat at a restaurant because that would make someone else work. You didn't go swimming because that was work. Don't quite understand that one. There was all kinds of codes and rules that were somehow derived biblically that were well-intentioned at some point to say that we are going to become rest and refreshed. Why? Well, it's all drawing from a biblical theology, from the law of Israel given by Moses in the Ten Commandments. So if we look at sort of the second sign-off on the Ten Commandments, first God had given Moses the Ten Commandments when he went up to Sinai, but Moses had broken those commandments as he came down in anger, righteous anger, at the rebellion of the Israelites who were worshiping a golden calf while Moses was literally going up into the presence of God. And so here in Exodus 31, we have a second giving of the law. And this time, whereas the Sabbath was the fourth commandment before, the Sabbath is giving at the closing, which is very interesting. In, in Exodus 31, verse 16, it says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he was rest, rested and refreshed. So this is a, a law given to the people of Israel for their particular place and time that I'll go into in a second that harkens back to Genesis 2. When God had created the earth in six days, Genesis 2 begins that God rested. If we look at the very beginning of Genesis 2 here. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his work and all that he had done. And then it revisits day six poetically to show you the point of rest. To show you that the point of rest was for communion between God and the highest crowning jewel of his creation, which was man and woman, which are his offspring created in his image, a reflection. Out of his love, he created the earth as the foundation for the existence of souls so that he could love and be with them because what love wants to do is love more things. Some of you are this kind of person. You see a cat, you see a dog, you see a baby chick. You want to love it. You just love to love because that's what love wants to do. And that's what God wants to do. That's part of the design of our love. Is that simply we want to share it. And so when this, when this law given... For the Sabbath, a prescription given, it's saying, you guys are so boneheaded and you've so forgotten it that I need to specifically give you a legal code that you've got to follow that reminds you that I actually love you. It's a little bit like a dinner, like we're going to all eat at the dinner table together. Instead of TV dinner in it or in and out or whatever we're going to do, we're going to sit together at the table. Why do we have that confine? To remind you your parents actually find you interesting and want to talk to you about your day. 
That's what God's doing. He's saying it's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Why? He was refreshed because he just got to spend time with the, with the people and the souls that he loved, that he created. In the image of himself, in the Imago Dei, that he raised to be good. And he enjoyed being good, enjoyed being with good, enjoyed being with good. It's the Trinity multiplied. That's where Sabbath begins from. That's like the origin, the emphasis of it. But now put yourself in the place of the Israelites wandering through the Sinai wilderness, southern, present-day Saudi Arabia, like the desert, right? They had gone out of the fertile Nile River Valley as slaves, freed from slavery into the desert. And here they are wandering, and they're not just wandering, they're going to be told that they have to wander until all of a generation dies and keep wandering in the circular, refining pattern of desert wandering. And they're told that there will be a promised land for them. And then they're told part of getting there is resting in the desert. Uh-uh. That, that doesn't add up. If the promised land is there, why rest? Why not work every single day of the week to get to the promised land? Because that's where we're going to rest. And you see, that's how most of us functionally have defined rest in our lives. Very few of us rest appropriately. Most of us rest. Our concept of rest is that's a thing for later. That's a thing for retirement. That's a thing for when I arrive in my career. That's a thing for when my kids are older. That's whatever we have delayed rest because it's not practical for my life. Because I'm supposed to be getting to the promised land. But I want to show you here that what God is doing with the Sabbath is he is saying the Sabbath is a thing you can do anywhere and the thing you should do always because the life of the person following God is a life meant for communion. He's giving them the garden in the desert. He's saying you can live a garden lifestyle when you're wandering through the wilderness. Why? I'll provide the food for you. I'll drop it from the sky. I'll make my presence known to you and I'll lead you where I want to go. And so long as you are following the pillar of flame that they followed at night and the smoke that they followed by day, as long as you're following that, you're on the right track. Because the goal is not arrival in the promised land. The goal is communion. And that's the goal of Sabbath. And that's what this psalmist is. So I just wanted to throw that out because that's a really important basic framework for our Sabbathing. Now let me give you an application of how we so often go about it, even if we have the practice of rest and Sabbath. Even if we do that, how often we go astray. On my a typical Saturday, we now try and do a Sabbath. I grew up doing that. I completely went off of it. Just didn't want anything to do with it. 
period of total deconstruction, and now I'm in this period of reconstruction. And I have now found, I've realized reading this text, a new functional legalism in my reconstruction. Oh yeah, I reconstructed it really well. My Sabbath is nothing like the Sabbath of my upbringing. My Sabbath, you can, you can buy gas at a gas station and eat out at a restaurant and make other people work. You can, you can go swimming. You can do all these things I couldn't do on Sabbath when, you, when or I was told you couldn't do on Sabbath when I grew up. You can play video games. You can watch a movie. You can do all these things because, because that's how I can actually rest and have freedom and enjoy life and enjoy things. But I've actually created a new functional legalism. So long as Sabbath has these bumpers where I don't check emails, where I don't think about work, where I don't do work, where I, where I um, spend time with my family, etc., etc., then I've done a good Sabbath. But the goal of Sabbath is actually communion. And I'm pretty sure I've lost the plot on that on a lot of Sabbaths. Because I'll tell you what happens on a lot of Sabbaths for me. I wake up after an intense and chaotic week. And the house is kind of messy. And things aren't really put together. And there is all sorts of projects I didn't get to that I want to get to. And I tell myself, I need to play video games with the kids or... This is good. I want to do this. I want to do this. But in the back of my mind is a nagging feeling, a, a total identity complex of frustration, depression, not feeling good enough, looking around and cleaning this thing up when nobody's looking and breaking the law, the code of the Sabbath. Because I'm allowing what is in front of me to reflect who I am. I'm embarrassed to say it. And so while the Sabbath pieces have been transformed in their legal code, there's still a functional legalism to them. They're not first geared from my attitude, which is an attitude, ought to be an attitude that this psalmist is saying is of worship, of thanksgiving. But because I've allowed what's around me to define who I am, I can't actually escape from me because as soon as I leave that Sabbath day, it all comes flooding back to me. And what I tend to think is, man, I just shouldn't have even spent that day doing that. I should have used it to get ahead on this or the other thing because what really matters is reaching the promised land. And we do this all of the time. Jesus talked about this kind of functional legalism that we do, this holiness practices that we do without working on the inner attitude. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, and he used this metaphor when he was talking about how it all works. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. So when you expel through bits and fits of reformation, and change and come and clean in New Year's resolutions. When you expel those things on, in your life habits and your rituals, good. That's great. That's really good to do. He says, but then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. The demon says that, that's been expelled. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in good order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation, he says. Here's what Jesus is getting at. 
when the external pieces of rest, when the external pieces of goodness, when the external pieces of arrival, which is where we meet peace, right? When our measurements for peace or accomplishments or success, which in the case of these people was holiness practices, religiosity, when they are in place and the outward measurables you place for your life are conquered momentarily, you can confuse yourself that you're actually in good shape. We still see ourselves and our worth and our identity so often in this way. Whitewashed tombs, pressure-washed tombs, all clean and tidy, but inside is death. We do this with our practices. Clean houses still do this to us. Good jobs still do this to us. Nice vacations, special gifts, affirmations. They all do this to us. But what happens? What do we see revealed when we do those things and the demon has been expelled, but the guard is not up for the demons to stay out. They flood back in. Let me give you an example. What happens when you clean your house and your husband or wife or kids come home and they don't even notice? And nobody even cares. Do you post it on Instagram to get an affirmation there? What happens when your good job isn't good enough for anybody else? When you still can't afford the house people want? When you still can't get the acclaim from your friends that you're looking for? What happens when the nice vacations end? What happens when you do all of the things and hit all the birthdays for the nephews and nobody calls you back? So we can see that rest is not an arrival at a promised land that happens later, but it is a rhythm. It is living at a sacred place. It is part and parcel of the Sabbath, communion, as it was meant to be in Genesis, as it was prescribed paradoxically and probably so frustratingly to the Israelites wandering in the desert. We know that they were frustrated by it. And that this attitude can be cultivated by practices, but practices are not in place of the attitude. That fasting does not bring holiness, but fasting can cultivate a space for focusing on the attitude and doing the actions of thanksgiving and gearing and cultivating the heart and asking the hard questions and reaching and experiencing and responding and accepting the love of Jesus into your life. You, broken you. And the psalmist says this, he does this, and, and all Israel should do is to declare your steadfast love in the morning. It means you declare God's love over your day in the morning and his faithfulness by night. You reclaim that at night and you say, I declared it over the day, let me see how it happens during the day. That could be as simple as my day was awful. My day was complete hell. But as I remember your love right now, I show, it shows me that my day led me to your mercy. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. The fact that you love me right now shows that the intention of the day could have been to break me to experience your faithfulness. St. Ignatius of Loyola called this prayer as an evening prayer, a prayer of examine. And thousands and millions of Christians practice this regularly. 
as a practice of cultivation of communion, where they take time to get in the presence of God, to meditate, to hear his love to them, to quiet everything else. And then they simply remember the day and name God's faithfulness in it. And then cast that forward over the next morning as they go to sleep with expectation that God will deliver on his promises tomorrow. This is pace and rhythm. This is attitude. This is creating life on the inside so that we are not whitewashed tombs. This is crediting and anchoring our lives to God. And that is the first way. If we ask, how does this psalmist become rest and refreshed? He credits and anchors his life to God. It's an act of communion. He says, it is all from you. And I am completely anchored and grow out of that. He is, in a sense, inspired in this early, these first five verses. He's talking mostly about being inspired. Let me give you a, a quick example. My kids, sometimes we do a quiet time in the evening where we spend a little bit of time just trying to connect with them. But it can be tough. It's another practice that requires the right attitude, and sometimes I don't have it. On those nights where I've had a good attitude and sit, that lately they've been asking me to draw things for them, a cartoon character they like, and so I'll sit down and try and draw it. And I'll tell you, as I'm drawing it, I'm looking at it going, just the proportions are off, the legs went off the page, it's not really what I wanted. And they're looking at it going, oh my gosh, that's amazing, Dad. Look at Dad, that's amazing, look at what he did. They're just in love with my works. They're inspired, and what I often will find is the next day or later that week or even that evening, they will start to draw themselves. That inspired by the gift and the beauty and the works of their father, they become creative themselves, mimicking his goodness, hopefully out of his character. I'm sure they still have his sin nature and judge their work too. But they are pulled into creativity as an act of praise. And that's what the psalmist is doing with his Sabbath. He starts his Sabbath talking about creative works of out, the outpouring of inspiration. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, by the works of your hands. I sing. That's a creative act. How great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. It is good to do it from the music, verse 3, of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre to enter a space to be creative and to pour out. So he credits and anchors his life to God. It brings him inspiration and out of that flows creativity. And it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. That he is not simply reading about someone's joy and forcing and guilting himself for not having joy. He is actually recalling who God is so that, in hopes that, true joy will be found in himself, in his soul. And that's what we all hope for in these cultivated practices that we do in our day of worship on Sunday. I look over here because this is our empty sanctuary. On Sunday, we are arriving to say, I'm here, work with me. And sometimes we are cold and calloused and removed because we haven't arrived at the promised land and we've missed the point. And we need to be broken down in that worship to just maybe get a glimmer of inspiration, a glimmer of joy, to hear the Spirit in some way. 
And my act as a teacher is to pull you and get you to say, here, grab onto it, grab onto it. I'm trying to grab onto it too so that we can actually feel joy together so it can actually be an authentic feeling. Nobody is interested. Well, plenty of churches are interested, but nobody should be interested as a Christian in the facade of religious practice as a poor fake for genuine praise. What we care about in discipleship and being a church family is authentically, personally finding Jesus as a group. That's what we're all about because that's where deliverance and freedom and true rest and refreshment comes from. Otherwise, Sabbath is a prison, but if you make it personal, it's restful and refreshing. The other personal way that the psalmist does this is he flips it in contrast, and this is where the enemies and the wicked come up. And he says, actually, it can be helpful for me to make it personal to see consequences sometimes. Sometimes that's what we need. We need to know you can't do that. We need to know, grow up. We need to know that what you have been doing is wrong, and I am going to hold you accountable. We need to know those things. It can be a help full reminder that there, that, there, that there is an outcome that we're experiencing just by not doing a thing. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. I've got something. But though the wicked sprout like grass and all the evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. I think that this is universal in the sense that it flows out of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but I think it's also personally motivated it's personally applied because we see a few glimmers of that in the phrase. Now, this is kind of literally dense, but people that study this psalm see that actually when verse 9 says, Before behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. That that's actually mocking language. This is a from the Ugaritic, which is the language of the Amorites, the surrounding tribe. Their worship of Baal, they had a very similar phrase from Baal that basically said, for behold, Baal, your enemies, for behold, your enemies will perish, right? That's basically what they had. And this is mocking language. It should be read like this. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. For behold, Baal shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. So it's using the language of the enemy to actually say, it ain't Baal's enemies, it's our God's enemies. That actually, we are on the right track and we have the right God. And our God is above everything else. And we can actually confidently say that those things lead to destruction and my God is a good God. So the personal can even be used in saying and taking the trappings of culture and saying those are incomplete, if not completely false. And I can actually say they're twisted in this way. And if I rebalance them, they become complete. A little bit like what I did last week with Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher, and saying, you observe something, but it was wrong. And the Christian sees it this way. And that forefronts and spotlights our God. And that is not done out of a spiteful, hateful thing of people. 
for us. It is done out of a spiteful hatred of hatred like David has for sin, for the perversion, for the rebellion. It's confidence. And what it's doing is it's embracing and it's saying, no, I have a God. And this is the second thing the psalm do in the second way that we should worship. The psalmist believes in the future and unfolding promise God gave Israel and to his people as being to him because he's an Israelite. So I'm going to say that again. The psalmist here believes in the future and unfolding promise that God gave to Israel and to his people. Has God necessarily conquered the Amorites in this psalm? We don't know. But I think that the psalm was probably written after their journey into the promised land because I think these uh, universal statements are personalized looking back in history and actually seen. He says, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies in verse 11. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Assailants. I think that the psalmist here is recalling, he's taking the universal that was prophetically put out in front as the promised land, and he's recalling it also as a memory. So the psalmist believes in the future and unfolding promise that God gave for the nation at this point of Israel. And what that promise is, in short, is verse 10. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Now I'll dig into this for a second. You have poured over me fresh oil. What, what does that idiom mean? What, what does that even mean? At this time in Israel, since the Exodus, there was a general overall sense. In fact, since even the covenant with Abraham, that the Bible is viewed in covenantal language. There's a covenant, a promise to Adam and Eve. There's a promise to Noah, never again will I have a worldwide flood. There's a promise to Abraham, you will, out of me will come many, many peoples, a great nation, God's nation. And then there's the Davidic covenant, the promise to David, the king, that you will reign and yours will be the kingdom of God. There's a general sense up until the split kingdom, until things really fall apart and go to hell in a handbasket for Israel. There's a general sense that God's chosen favor was on his people. This is what it means to believe in the future and unfolding promise God gave to Israel and his people is that they have his favor. Now, this is huge. When it says you have exalted my horn, the horn is a symbol of power. You have exalted my power. God has exalted me. It means you have chosen me and brought me into a place of power by bestowing your favor Upon me. And then there's anointing language used. And I was thinking about that anointing language. When Samuel anoints David as to be the king, or when Samuel anoints first Saul and then David to be the king, that anointing is a pouring over of oil. And what it is, is it's not Samuel, a man anointing a king, it's God through Samuel anointing with fresh oil. His favor. He's saying, I picked you to be on my team. I picked you to lead my team on earth. Think of how much of a refreshment in our rest context, knowing what Sabbath is supposed to be, a time of rest and refreshment. How essential then that believing the future unfolding promise that God gives is to see that his favor is actually on me. He loves me. That means he's chosen me for his team, me right now. In the depths of my despair, I'm chosen to be on the team of God. He is actively at this moment refreshing me through affirmation. 
And it's remembering that this favor is actually shown now and it's also promised. And that creates a striking confidence in this psalm. That there is a very active state of rest in this psalm. That the refreshment is active rest. You know, I was thinking about like what's work and play the other day. We're always doing things. We're like always doing. Work is just a word we use for the things that often we don't want to do that we have to do. Or the things we get paid to do so that we can do all the other things. But when you actually really enjoy your work, it becomes play. I was listening to the Bible Project and Tim Mackey and John Collins were talking about this very concept. That's where I'm grabbing it from. They were talking about like work, work. When you're like in Zen at work, meaning like it's just flowing, it's like play. You, you're, you're playful. You're having fun. You're creative. An active state of rest knows with the knowledge of God's favor, his goodness, his faithfulness, that I can let go of arrival because this is arrival. Preaching to myself right here. I can let go of arrival because this is arrival. So stop judging your present circumstances by how they look and letting them define you. Instead, look up to God and let his works define you. Let his promises carry you. That's what the psalmist is doing in order to rest on the Sabbath, in order to let go of everything. He has to be active. So Sabbath is not a time simply of letting it all loose and being idle. A rhythm, a sacred rhythm of life is not an escape from life out of obligations and rules and expectations into the various whims of self. No, that's like the wind. That's like chaff being blown in the wind. In Jewish wisdom literature, being idle is not a nice thing to say. Idle hands. There's all this talk about being idle, just being listless, just going to whatever you want. No, active rest has purpose, and it's in love with a promise, and it lives out of that. It's a rest is a holding on to God, an escape into God, not an escape into self and the desires of self. God desires this psalmist. He's loving him. He's hemming him in in Psalm 139 language. And with his eyes and his ears, he is seeing the gifts of grace of God. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. It's just, we just always hear that in very spiteful, violent language. But remember, God is protecting goodness. This is the psalmist is a good person living by good ideals, by living by a good God. And he's seeing God's grace in his protection for him here. So he, he is seeing the promise, naming the promise, claiming the promise. He takes it and he owns it for himself. It is so easy to see God's favor and say, well, that psalmist had it, but I must be doing something wrong because I don't have God's favor because look at my life. And this psalmist is saying, no. The favor is given to the one that wants to escape into God. Take it. Claim it. Own it. Escape into it. Ride it. See where it carries you. 
Worship of God, then, is the nature of Sabbath rest and refreshment. Worship is communion. It's a focus on God over one's self. Remember earlier I talked about it's hard to rest because I always allow what is in front of me to reflect who I am. I read into the present to inform my identity. But if we worship, look at how little personal language there is. There's no woe is me language actually in here. This is an interesting psalm that way. There's no personal sort of complaints or even petitions. God is never asked once for anything in this psalm. It's wild. Not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's wild. In this psalm, the worship is saying it's completed in God. I see how he takes care of everything. And it's all focused on his work over oneself. Gone is the navel gazing in this psalm, and the eyes are cast to look behind and see the goodness and glory of God invading the psalmist's life in every way. And in this way, the psalmist is de facto, by the nature of seeing things that way, by the nature of being thankful to God, he is exercising reliance, which will bubble up into inspiration, which will bubble up into expectation. See, if we gear everything to our opinions, if you think you suck, if you think your life sucks, and you think God shouldn't choose you or love you or affirm you, I want to tell you this. That's actually not just a you thing. That's not something you can sort of keep compartmentalized. It's leaking out into all of your relationships. Because you then also think God shouldn't choose love or affirm or a lot of other, a lot of other people too. If he can do that to you, and if he doesn't love you and you're not worthy of love, then there's lots of other people not worthy of love too. But when you flip that and you see that God loves every human and he desires all of them, you now can't say that God can't love somebody else and that you shouldn't love them either. And I think that's part of why we're scared of it. We lose control over what we get to love and don't love. And that brings us to the third thing. The th- the, this favor, this, this resting in the promise and this favor points us to Jesus. Think about this anointing act. He is bestowing, God is bestowing on the psalmist. He's lifting up, he's giving his favor. He's freeing him from condemnation, from his enemies. He's giving him conviction as we've talked about. He's bringing him out of depression, anger, and failure. He's resurrecting him. And so that's where, when we take the framework of the psalm, which was to be used on the Sabbath day, the seventh day rest, a particular codified legal rest time with boundaries and bumpers, sunset to sunset, we find that when we look back at the true intention of Sabbath rest and refreshment, it... It happened on a day, but it's celebrating a lifetime. It's celebrating a lifestyle. It's indicative of an attitude and a way of being. Resting in Jesus means not simply a Sabbath day, but a Sabbath lifestyle of true rest and complete grace. Now, what I am not saying here is get rid of a Sabbath day. What I'm saying is that the Sabbath day is intended to be like a reminder moment, to cultivate a space, a springboard into the week. It is to say, 
hold the phone, put everything away, just like it's important to come worship on Sundays to be reminded of who God is for your week. Any time of calculated and, and supported and ritualized and habitualized rest is not like I refill the well on that day and then I spend it over the week. It is an act of like reclaiming, reminding, carrying forward. It's not the carrot dangling. We're not waiting for a promised grace, but through Jesus, we have a fulfilled grace. The favor is bestowed. We have evidence of it. We can claim our anointing because Jesus has extended it to the whole world. And now is where the Psalms get pretty wild. When you start to read the Psalms as pointing to Jesus, you have to read them sometimes twice. Because this psalm, in light of Jesus, is saying the one place to always seek rest that we must first go to seek rest before we go to the garden. It's barred with a sword, metaphorically, for us. Is we have to go seek rest in the cross, in the good news of Jesus. So let's read this psalm for a second. I'm going to read some parts of this psalm. I don't know how you read this. But I tend to read the word Lord in the Psalms as God, God the Father, God. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And, you know, we tend to like look up and have that vision that we talked about of God with his beard up in the heavens. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Now say it's good to give thanks to the Lord Jesus. Because we can do that. Because we have the Trinity. Because they are one. It is good to give thanks to Jesus. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. Go to verse 4. For you, O Lord Jesus, have made me glad by your work. What is Jesus' crowning work? It's his death on the cross. You have made me glad by the cross. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. The Christian sings most about the cross. That's what we sing about. How great are your works, O Lord. But you, O Lord, verse 8, Jesus are on high forever. For behold your enemies, Jesus, for behold your enemies shall perish. Well, that includes a lot more people in my frame of reference now. The enemies, the enemies of mercy. The whitewashed tomb shall perish. The hypocritical shall perish. The people in love with their image shall perish. The celebrity Christians that don't know Jesus could perish. It's not simply like the wicked, however your bias has framed that in the world, whatever identities you put on that. No. It is the people with the attitude of wickedness, the rebellious, wherever they may be, that don't want the way of Jesus. And then moving down, they are planted in the house of the Lord Jesus. They flourish in the courts of the Lord and their purpose is to declare that the Lord Jesus is upright. See how it changes the psalm to read it as directed to Jesus. So Tim and John in this Bible Project podcast, they were talking about how when you look at the promised land even, that when God is leading them into communion in the circular fashion of bringing them closer to his presence in obedience, in rest, in practice, in attitude, he then leads them into the promised land. But even that falls apart because what the Israelites were after, 
is actually what Tim called the promised rest. And Jesus is the promised rest. And Matthew 11, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, now rest has gone. Genesis 2, garden communion, full circle to Jesus' communion. Do you see that? It's freed from legalism. I'm the promised rest. Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's grace where we find rest. See, for many of us, the weariness is not actually in the work week. The weariness is not in the work, as my Sabbath functional legalism showed me. It's in the weariness is in my failure. It's in my lack of accomplishment. It's in my lack of consistency. It's in my lack of discipline. It's in my lack of dreams realized. And it's weighing me down. It's a heavy yoke that I think I need to carry to work out of that to arrive at the promised land one day in my life. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Tim and John describe that burden as ergonomic, that the yoke is ergonomic, like a backpack that has straps around the center, that it's form-fitting and it distributes the weight, that Jesus' grace, he gives you, he takes the yoke that was the Torah, that's what he's meaning. He's meaning the Old Testament law, and the Pharisees had made it totally impossible to live it. And he's replacing it with the yoke of his grace, his forgiveness, the gift of his favor on you, despite of yourself. And it is there we find that Sabbathine is resting in the grace of Jesus for your whole life. Your whole life is Sabbathine in Jesus' grace. Your past is over. Rest is release of your past. It doesn't need to burden you. You're carrying it all on one shoulder when you do that. Jesus says, release it into me and it'll get distributed. And the burden is light because the failures don't add to your burden and weigh it down anymore. Pilgrim's Progress imagery is coming up for me. Anyone who knows that story, we lay down the burden at the cross. Because the burden is our self-judgment and it's our judgment of others. This shows me too one thing that I've been really wrestling with. Is that it is possible then to rest with Jesus in this life, which means it is possible to successfully follow Jesus in life. This is not, Jesus' ideal is not another impossible ideal like the Pharisees had, but it is actually possible to walk with Jesus in grace in this life. That we are not on some fool's errand that will never happen, but we can actually find a lifestyle of grace. That's, that's hope. And I don't even know where to begin on that. I'm going to park that one. Meditate on that. But this is what is shown of the possible life of grace in Jesus. Verse 12 through 15. The tree image. This is Psalm 1 on steroids. Okay? Look at this. The righteous flourish 
like a palm tree. Where does the palm tree grow? The palm tree is a shooting up monolith out of the flat desert. The righteous flourish like the palm. Also interesting, the date palm, just so you know, has the oldest seed ever found, I believe, was from the date palm tree. It's like, I don't know, however, it's from like King Herod's time. I think it's like 2,000 years old. And it, I believe it's still viable. That's the vitality of the date palm, which just mirrors what's put in here. And where does this tree grow? It grows in the courts of the Lord Jesus. What are the courts language for? His presence. It grows in his presence. This is John 15, abiding language. It grows in grace. That is where we grow the tree of our life is in grace. And we look like a cedar of Lebanon, which is another strong tree with great deep roots. And we see the beauty of this, that the anathema of our society is actually celebrated in the kingdom of Jesus. Look at what the talk about is of old age. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Is there anyone more forgotten in our society? I'm complicit in this. Than those who grow old. Our society is in love with youth. Even as we grow old, we're taught to be in love with youth, to look young. It's just, it's all about youth. But the kingdom of Jesus turns that upside down and frees us from that. It says, the old in God, those who have anchored themselves in a lifestyle of Sabbath grace, bear fruit, and they're full of vitality. And you will know them because they declare. The vitality is so that they can declare that the Lord is true and upright and good. The same word that is used here for the oil which has been poured over me, the same verb, is the verb that's used forever full of sap and green. And it's a word that most closely aligns with soaked. I have been soaked in anointing. I have been soaked in grace. Whether young or old, the soaking of grace and promise is the same as potent, real, life-changing, life-directing And we are never too old to declare the most important and life-giving thing. The Christian world should be a world of wise sages. Where we look up to those who have lived this grace lifestyle. And can share it with us. So, it ends then with this statement. What do they declare? To declare that the Lord is upright... He is my rock, and there is no unrightness, unrighteousness in him. He is the rock. Jesus is the rock. Now, fast forward to Matthew 7. Jesus has delivered his Sermon on the Mount. He began with the Beatitudes, and he ends the sermon, the takeaway, the like final mic drop moment at the end of the sermon is this, 7 verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Just like the grasses that spring up and look like they're everywhere and they're abundant, but then die as the seasons and as the summer come because the roots are weak. So the house falls. Is this not Psalm 92 language that Jesus is using? It's as if Jesus read and lived out of the Psalms, isn't it? To see all of these interconnections where Jesus is springing off of a life spent in the Psalms to deliver his most impactful and ethically polarizing and eternally wise and relevant and celebrated sermon. And he's saying this, rest is release. Not what we think of. It's not release from stress. It's not, it's not rest for whatever feels good right now. That's blown around in the wind. That's what most of us think rest is. Oh, finally time where I can just do whatever my whims desire. It's not pleasure, it's not indulgence, it's not something on your bucket list, it's not your restful feelings, it's actually, it's not only your restful feelings, it's actually realignment, true rest. It's refreshment that equips like water. It is not just the occupation of the mind or the body parts to distract, titillate, or numb. That is not the purpose of rest. But true rest is not going it alone. So rest is release into Jesus, not simply release. True rest is actually the most unnaturally natural thing there is. What do I mean by that? It's not what you will generally find you do in idleness, which you might think of as the natural thing, but it's what you will find what you really, it's what you really needed. It's the most natural. It's the most basic. It's the most foundational. It's the most naturally unnatural, unnaturally natural thing there is. It's active. It takes an attitude. It takes steering. It takes abiding. It takes thanksgiving. But our small things so often get in the way of the biggest things. We have too many preconditions, too many fears of what people will think, too many small things are getting in the way of the biggest thing. Too many short-term fixes are keeping us from the long-term presence in the courts, in the presence of Jesus. So before this in the sermon, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus means he talks about doing the will of the Father, being blessed. He talks about the narrow gate. He talks that there are few who will pass into heaven. He talks about not all good fruit. Not all fruit is good fruit, but only that which comes from a good tree. And what he's saying is this. He's saying it's the most unnaturally natural thing. That to sense the garden... We have been geared to find it in all the wrong ways because sin has entered our life and its temptations are louder. They're more present. They're more visible. We have to see beneath, underneath life. 
He says, we want to earn it. We want to make ourselves blameless before entering into the next life. And this life is sort of our competition of ego and excellence and our pursuit of desire. But Jesus says, desire me. I'm bigger. I'm a life of overflowing love. Not worldly prestige, not headlining, not headlines of creative innovations, not the talk of all your friends. That's Warhol's 15 minutes of fame. And Jesus says, that's fleeting. I'm lasting. So let's live in the promised rest of Jesus, available to us now through the grace of the cross. I wish this week we were doing communion because it hit me just the importance of communion. A lot of us rest with food. A lot of us relax by just feeling the good feelings that food brings physiologically to our bodies, the taste, the rushes, the, the ways that they change us, the way that they make us feel as though we've arrived at the promised land momentarily. We'll take it because we just want a distraction. And Jesus says there is rest in food. It's in the body and blood that I give you, he says. It's in my body. I'm your food. I'm the food that you can indulge on, that you can enjoy, that will be lasting and bring true rest. I'm the most unnatural, natural food. So when we get back in the building and take communion and bread and wine again, remember that this communion action is an action of rest and refreshment, of eating in grace and forgiveness, taking it into our bodies. That is the doing of the will that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a prescribed attitude. It is a doing and an acting out of it, eating it ourselves, feeling the joy, praising out of thanksgiving ourselves. And it will be humble. It will be confessing. It will be wounded. It will be troubled. It will be broken. It must originate from those places because that's who we are. But God's favor, his anointing is on us, refreshing us saying, I've chosen you for my team. Come and eat of grace and rest in it, in my presence. And share the life abundant come Monday, come Tuesday. Eat in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I, I pray that Today, we would take grace in a wholly new way, that we would let it redefine who we are, that something would spark in our lives, God. God, fill us with gratitude, personal gratitude. I pray that you would fill each person listening to this with a personal love, that they would see that they can't not want the food of your body and your blood broken and shed for them for the forgiveness of their sins and the beauty and the goodness that that will bring for the flourishing of the world because they delight in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.